Welcome to the first episode of season two of Risk Engineers Talk Governance. In this episode, due diligence engineers Richard Robinson and Gay Francis talk about safety in design, especially in relation to a recent VCAT tribunal they were expert witnesses in. We hope you enjoy the episode. Please give us any feedback on topics that you would like us to cover. And please subscribe on your favourite platform and also give us a rating. Hi, Richard. Welcome to another podcast session recording. Hi, Gay. It's good to be here. Today we thought we'd talk about a, a recent job that we've been working on, which was a hearing in the VCAT Tribunal, Victorian... Um, Civil and Administrative Tribunal. Thank you for that, VCAT. Um, and, and what happened was a young couple came to us and, and they were trying to put a planning permit in um, with a local council that had got rejected. Um, and the reason for its rejection was that it had been... That, that was a single dwelling at the moment, an old house that they wanted to pull down and put two townhouses on. Um, and it was rejected on, on advice from WorkSafe that it was now in a major hazard facility contour line, which we'll go into in a little bit more detail now. And their argument was that um, the, the new two townhouses had a greater exposure or, or exposed potentially more people to this hazard than was existing in the original dwelling. That's right. So the, the, the argument was that there were four people in the original dwelling with two houses side by side, there'd be eight people. And it was unreasonable to increase the number of people on a societal risk basis. So for this reason, um, even though WorkSafe wasn't, um, wasn't a, an authority, a planning um, authority to be able to reject it, that advice went to, to the council and it was rejected on those grounds by council under their planning permit scheme. So they sort of turned up here and said, ah, what do we do with this? Are you able to help us? Yeah, so what we basically said to them, well, the, the, from the point of view of an explosion coming from a major hazard facility, and you're now within the consequence contour, um, there are two core hazards. Um, the, the first one, which has always been well known, is that if you have an explosion coming your way, windows blow in and you can get the windows will turn to glass shards. This is a particularly well-known terrorist technique, which I've got to say, Bob Browning, whom you recall, talked to me all these years ago and it sort of rose from the Hyde Hotel bombing in Sydney, which is now so long ago I don't suppose anybody actually remembers about it. But, but the notion, and, and we've done work on major hazards facilities for munitions plant at um, Mawala and the other one up at uh, Shepparton, right back of Shepparton, somewhere it is. Um, and, and the idea that, you know, that the, what you need to do to make sure that windows don't blow and you know, explosion overpressure don't cause you problems is well known. And at that institutions, we were using NATO design standards for this purpose. It's not something you traditionally do, I've got to say. Anyway, we sort of point out there's two core houses. The windows blow in and shrapnel. And the other one, which happens, particularly if you put up tile roof and you've got finials or gargoyles or something on it, the explosion can pick up the roof tiles, knock them off, and the roof tiles can fall to the ground and clunk people down below. And both those things are pretty serious hazards and you need to address them. And the two most obvious controls to do here is have a, a metal roof, a, a colour-bond roof of some sort, which they already had on their plans. And the other thing was um, to have laminated windows, a, a matter which they thought they had, because they had to have energy-efficient building, and one of the things and one of the ways you do that is to have um, laminated windows. And the reason for that is that if, if the window blows in, it just holds the, holds the glass together. It's not a question of the robustness of the lamination. I mean, if it you really... It just holds the shards together. The shards together. together. If you're really serious about this sort of stuff, you can have a window that'll withstand 
303 bullets, but that's not what we need in this instance, just to kind of hold the glass together. And interestingly enough, when you looked at the um, safety case guideline that the major hazard site produced, if they said if you had a problem, you know, go inside and close your win window um, curtains. And the reason we do that is so that when the glass shards happen, the curtains catch them. Anyway, the council in the meantime was then saying, you know, just don't increase the density. And then they started talking about it, or well, the lawyer for the council started talking about having emergency procedures, which doesn't make any sense at all because you're talking about an explosion. Um, and explosions go sort of just slightly faster than the speed of sound, which is about 340 metres a second. Now, they're about 500 metres from the boundary and about 750 metres from the probable hazard source. The explosion's going to arrive to two to three seconds. There's nothing you can do. doesn't give you much time to enact an emergency evacuation plan and, and probably the safest place to be would be inside anyway rather than outside and trying to evacuate some way. Well, I was living in North Melbourne with my family when the... Um, the Butler transport fire blew up and I felt the windows rattle and galloped outside to have a look. Um, that's probably about 2k away from me at the time because I knew it was an overpressure. You could feel the shockwave. Um, couldn't see anything and then I sort of saw it in the news later that day. But, you know, I, I was sufficiently far away that, you know, once... In fact, the consequence line was a kilometre away from the site boundary and I've got to say, based on what we've seen and what popped up in the tribunal, I think that was probably a, a correct uh, boundary distance. Um... The next podcast we're going to do is going to talk about um, the consequences of the, of the major hazards regulator in Victoria creating a consequence boundary, which we have to say is one of the best things that could ever have happened and we've been waiting for for the last 20 years. But what I want to particularly just comment on was um, the actual way in which the VCAT tribunal operated and from our point of view as experts what this means. Um, we sort of talked about it as an overall observation. We're pretty impressed with the VCAT process, although we're a little bit cranky about how long it all took. It but, was a very long, drawn-out process. But that's fair enough, and the decision still hasn't been made, and we're not sure when that will happen. But for various reasons, and, and, and I'm pretty sure VCAT's overloaded, um, because one of the things that these consequence curves around the major hazard facilities has happened is there's been a deluge of VCAT planning appeal cases uh, going on to the Supreme Court. So... The, the, the amount of sheer amount of energy and resources going to resolving this is absolutely stupendous. And that's based on a single change, that it changed from a risk contour to a consequence contour. Correct. And so a lot more buildings are, or potential properties in these municipalities that have major hazard facilities are impacted um, by this change. Correct. Now, one of the problems we had, because we're acting as experts, so when you turn up as an expert, you're acting on behalf of the tribunal. You're not meant to be an advocate speaking on behalf of your client. And whereas the, the council actually had a lawyer representing them. And so an awful lot of the proceedings was taken up by legal argument between what planning rules applied, what planning precedents would take, take the case, i.e. the laws of man. Now, we were trying to articulate the laws of nature. And just as an observation, I was a bit surprised that we were the only experts in the room. I was rather anticipating the council might have a technical expert and, or maybe, and maybe the major hazard facility um, and even major hazards regulator might think it was worthwhile turning up to provide some insight so the, so the laws of nature could be established clearly between all the technical parties. That did I, not happen. I guess just clarifying that, though, the technical arguments that were made during those practice meetings were apparently tested back with the technical experts in each of those organisations of the major hazard facility and WorkSafe is our understanding. And then it was sort of brought them back to um, VCAT in the next session that, yes, we can confirm that that is the case. 
Well, that's the way we interpret their presentation as made by their submissions, as made by their lawyers, that the technical experts had reviewed our expert report and said, yeah, what we've said was fair. That's correct. That's that, correct. That was my understanding. But, you see, we were actually acting as, not as advocates, but as assisting the tribunal. So we tried to put forward the most comprehensive understanding we could for the benefit of the tribunal. And to do that, we actually adopted our threat barrier technique, which paralleled the major hazards organisations, same process, and we basically confirmed that we thought what they were saying and what the regulator was doing was making a great deal of sense. And so if you look at the hierarchy control, uh, the elimination option, delete the major hazard facility or delete the houses, that wasn't going to happen, nor was anybody contemplating that. Then you're looking at the preventative side to make sure the thing didn't happen in the first place, and you had a five-year rolling safety case which everybody seems to agree was working well because there'd be no incidents from this site and it had been around for a long time because I'm pretty sure I can remember going there 30 years ago and doing various safety case work. Um, and so then it became downrange of the mitigation, i.e. the question of how you would deal with this hazard after the explosive overpressure came this way towards these young couple's proposed development. And there were basically five controls. Um, you can, it's just attenuation the pressure attenuation by distance, and it's generally a cube law for at least a point explosion um, in, in, in space because of the, the explosion expanding as a, as a circle, as a, as a cubic volume, a sphere. Uh, when it's close to the ground, it gets a bit more problematic because you've got, got this pressure wave coming back up, so you get a hemispherical wave, so it's a bit hard to sometimes figure out. And also, you don't know where the damn explosion is going to be because it's a gas cloud. You don't know if it's got its. A, it's reached a fuel-air mixture. You don't know when it's going to find the ignition source. There's such a fabulous array of problems. And unknowns that change the circumstances almost every time that, that well, condition happens. Well, it's a happens. very rare occasion. Mm. I mean, one of the ones that always fascinated me was that Professor Dougal Drysdale from uh, Edinburgh University talking about the Bunsfield explosion. So it sort of said the stoichiometric mixture could only occur because they pollarded the trees like in a way that it actually created a mixing device to get the air explosion mixed just right before it found the ignition source, which apparently was a fire pump, vaguely, ironically, but anyway. Um, anyway, the, the point was, uh, then you had the attenuation, then you had, the, from our point of view, the controls to stop the explosion, pushing the glass in and knocking things off the roof. So building and design type stuff. Yep. And then uh, safety and design, basically. Safety and design. Then you had the, um, let's not have too many people there. And the last one was the emergency procedures, both of which we didn't think were particularly effective. And that came out. What we didn't do, because our young people didn't have any lawyer to cross-examine us and draw out from us what were the really important points, i.e. the advocate's point, and as experts we're not in a real position to say it, was to actually just hammer the importance of what we were saying. And that was, and so I, I guess I'll just summarise it now, if we were the advocate, what we would have said. Now, these young people didn't know this problem existed until somebody told them mid-last year and they had their planning and building permits ready to roll. They have absolutely no control over this explosion and pressure wave coming their way. There is nothing they can do. From their point of view, this is just like a force of nature, something they have to deal with. The two core hazards that they have to deal with after talking to competent consulting engineers are the windows blowing in and the roof bits coming off. That were confirmed by the major hazard facility and WorkSafe. Correct. And in order to eliminate that hazard, what they had to do was have a steel roof, colour bond roof, and laminate the windows. And if they did that, 
they practically would have eliminated the hazard at the distance which they are because the attenuation did give them a lot of benefit. Under the legislation, you have to eliminate. That's the, the, w, the OHS Act in Victoria, which is the enabling legislation for major hazards. Um, you have to eliminate hazards so far as reasonably practicable. And if you can't eliminate them, and only then do you reduce them. The elimination option, they already had a colour pond roof, so you can't say that's prohibitively expensive or difficult. Mm. And to laminate the windows, well, they actually suspected they already were, but the architect hadn't defined that because of the rejection of the permit, but to actually include that was trivial. Mm. You are not allowed to go to the next option, which is to reduce the number of people at risk, if you can eliminate the hazard in the first place. It doesn't matter if there's four or eight people. If the hazard been eliminated, it is completely irrelevant. And to even discuss emergency procedures for an explosive potential, where the best thing to do is just to rush in the house and lock yourself in and be secure... Nonsensical, isn't nonsensical. it? Nonsensical. But we didn't say that because we weren't allowed to act as advocates. And so I guess we have sort of... That's the one part of the process I didn't like. But we'll have to see what happens. Um, yeah, and, and I guess that just also draws out the difference between, um, you know, the requirements under a planning permit rules and the planning permit schemes compared to the OHS legislation and, and how do they fit in together and what councils are expected to do about it. And I, and I think this is something that, you know, it's a bigger issue, isn't it, that needs to be thought through. Um, well, what puzzles us, and again, we made it clear in our expert statement, which I presume if anybody wants a copy of, we can actually provide... Um, because it's our opinion. There's nothing, there's no reason why we can't. But I was pointing out how my, um, the gas pipeline people who, you know, high-pressure gas pipeline, which we've done a lot of work for, we put engineering design calls in regularly. And everyone signs off and the council signs off and, and Energy Safe Victoria signs off. We're actually sort of nonplussed as to what's actually going on here. And particularly in terms of the council, because it's like the council de-engineered itself. There were no experts from the council. No not, technical, not technical experts. experts, yes. Especially, you know, for, for if your municipality is dealing with these sort of hazards, you would expect some sort of understanding within the council um, of, of those and, and what you can put in place. Because I would think from a council viewpoint, you know, development's good. It is. And, and you know, as, as we talked about with, with our clients or with, with the young people, is their house is actually safer than the older houses. If they put this new design in... It's safer for the eight people. If you leave it the way it is, it's more dangerous... For the four, four people. And that means it's in everybody's interest to have it done. So if you take this as an overarching principle that you put these safety and design controls in place for new developments, all of a sudden in areas that do have major hazard facilities, you will get a safer um, this community. The, the community be more resilient, which is what everybody wants. Mm. So we hope you find that found that interesting, our, our podcast interesting today. Thank you for joining us and um, we hope you get to do, um, see you or hear you next time we, we, we put in a podcast. Thank you.